All right. Aftershocks, Tremors, Matt and Chris, we're back with another discussion episode today where we, we like to talk about all the ins and outs and get into the minutia of this crazy thing we call the music business. And on today's episode, we've got a very special guest joining us. He is the director for an outstanding 90s-based documentary that was released in 2019. It's titled Underground Incorporated, The Rise and Fall of Alternative Rock. Joining us from the land down under, we got Mr. Sean Katz. Sean, thanks for coming on, buddy. How you Howdy. doing? Thank you. Thank you for having me. Sure, absolutely, man. Absolutely. Well, Underground Incorporated, the reason why you're here is to talk about this really, really solid uh, documentary you put out some years back, uh, like I said, 2019. Uh, if anybody wants to get an idea of sort of what went on between post-Nirvana and I'd say pre-Limp Biscuit, in that area right there, this is definitely right up your alley. Uh, you know, it's a very interesting time in rock and metal in that in that time period. Um, a lot of people considered, as was mentioned in the movie, you know, this might have been the last physical rock scene really that's been out there i mean you know we'll get into talking all about it, but you know it's a really great film uh sean you know i mean there's some names that i haven't heard in years you know watching this uh documentary uh so it was really cool to kind of just go back and just you know remember that time period of of music um but um you know i think a great line in the movie before i ask you a question here was dave windorf when he said when creativity meets chaos that was the 90s in that time period uh, within the music industry. So, I mean, Sean, uh, what was it that really just gave you, I guess, the impetus to, you know, to put out a documentary that focused on this particular era in hard rock and metal history? Because this is an interesting era, um, you know, pros and cons. Um, what gave you sort of the idea to like, you know, I, I want to put together a documentary on, on this time period of music? Uh, I was working in a record store uh, probably a few years after this whole kind of thing died down and okay. I got exposed to all these bands who I'd never heard of before, but my boss was like, you got to listen to this. You got to check these guys out. They only released one album. It's mm -hmm. awesome. It's the greatest thing ever. These guys only released two albums and then this happened and this and that. And I was just doing research because so many of these things he was giving me, I liked better than the household names. I thought, why is it like that the same four or five same bands in this genre are always on the cover of Rolling Stone, yet uh, no one ever talks about Sugartooth or Corrosion of Conformity or Course of Empire or Cop Shoot Cop, not a band starting to see apparently. Uh, but um, yeah, and I just dug deeper and deeper. And then I, I, I started to actually meet some of these people who were involved in the dock. And then suddenly I... One thing led to another, and uh, I was flying from Sydney to uh, the U.S. and flying through about 23 different cities, filming wow. and interviewing all these amazing people that had been the soundtrack to my teen years and 20s and that kind of thing. Okay, very cool. So, yeah, how, how did you go to the, about, I guess, determining who you wanted to feature in the film? Because, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about that time period, me and Chris, we, you know, we were talking about this before, you know, we, we came on here was i mean you know alternative rock that that name alternative <clears throat> was just so you know it's it sort of vague and very wide you know it's a wide scope i mean it almost seemed like in that time period if if you know a label or a band or manager whatever have you be if they didn't really know how to sort of you know genreify or categorize their their you know their band it was just like let's slap the alternative on there and then you know call it alternative rock or metal or 
or, or you know, and then you have, of course, the post stuff, you know, the post post grunge and post hardcore and, and so forth. So, I mean, what I guess, how did you decide on who to to interview and who to feature in this film because of all the different, you know, sorts of sounds within that whole alternative realm? Sure. Well, I was completely selfish. I only contacted <laughs> all the bands that I loved. I, I basically <laughs> took my CD or record collection and I basically mm -hmm. adapted it into a music documentary. And I have heard some critiques about people saying, oh, well, if, you know, I had made it, I would have put in this band and that band and I wouldn't have put in these guys. But the thing is, they didn't make it. I made it and these were the right. bands that I love. So it is very mm -hmm. much a subjective thing. And it was kind of like a museum of all the things that I've loved over the years that I've discovered. So uh there are some bands i would have liked to have included in it but you know mm. you're you're reaching out to people who you've never met and only so many of them are going to say yes and uh mm. that was how i picked who i wanted to have in the music doc and, and what's amazing is you it's, it's not like you got small names only it's not like you just got you know the the triangle player from three minutes of better than ezra or something you know you got you got you got like legit really like especially the helmet guys and and stuff like that i mean these were legit bands they're still legit bands monster magnet legit band still going queens of the stone age legit band still going it, it's it's fascinating to me that guys that are still doing it and are doing it at a high level were willing to kind of just sit down with you as a, as sort of an unknown. Was that surprising to you? Yeah. Um, well, I'll answer that in a second, but the funniest thing about what you just said is there basically is the triangle player from better than Ezra in it because <laughs> the drummer who was in course of empire now plays drums in better than Ezra. Oh, wow. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, um, yeah, look, I, I was very fortunate. I, I had done a couple of little things and I had done uh, a couple of little collaborations with Peter Mangere from Helmet. So when he was, when I was able to, you know, show little interview pieces that I had already done with him for the, the film that I wanted, that was, that I was pitching to these people when I was able to show that and show short films that I'd won awards for and that kind of thing. Um, those awards and mainly Peter from Helmet really helped to legitimize what I was trying to do. So that's, I think, what made the people who I contacted more willing to listen to what I had to say. Sure. Now, um, Sean, I, I, I have always thought this, and tell me if I'm wrong, because you certainly know these bands better than I do. But um, I've always thought that the main reason that this era of music didn't last very long that the bands kind of all broke up or you know scavenged each other and you know didn't hold together like like the, uh, i'll compare it to 80s hair metal not musically but yeah. the hair metal bands from them they're still doing they it today. just went on they, they just went shut up yeah, yeah they just they just keep going <laughs> but i've always thought that the reason that that is is because this era of music was not created in in a vacuum that could sustain itself and what i mean by that exactly. specifically is you can't write good music like this from a place of wealth or from from a place of not being starving and hungry and 
or hungry to to make it you know it's not the kind of music that a success high-end rich people can make when when a lot of these guys made their money they stopped being good because they didn't know how to write from that place of of hunger and despair and and anymore and i've always thought that's what killed this scene was that you know when you heard even going back a little bit to nirvana when you first heard nirvana when you heard bleach or nevermind or whatever this was a band that you could tell they were coming from a really dark place and when you heard in utero it was like all right now they got a lot of money not quite the same you know and smashing pumpkins same type of thing nine inch nails same type of thing uh white zombie same type of thing helmet same kind of thing it just seems like once these guys got successful it it drained away their commitment to what the scene was all about in the first place does that make sense oh yeah absolutely uh look i mean i i think that if you are creative you're creative if you can if you've got it if you've got the merger you've got the merger but i what i do agree with what you said is that um uh the infrastructure like these bands came out from uh, a punk sensibility they came out from um an underground that had cultivated itself over 10 years of people breaking their backs and blazing trails and indirectly setting up a demographic for better or worse that would you know go into that whole lollapalooza 90s alternative thing but the thing was um when when like you know how there's that a and r gal who is explaining in the music doc uh, laurel stones she's explaining how mm. when you take something out of its environment and you put yeah. it into something okay. uh where it may not have the same things that can um support that kind of scene sure. it can begin to die. So I think that was a big part of it. And I also think that um, the whole thing about, oh yeah, we've got an A&R guy working on this deal for us and a thing is on MTV and we're a buzz band. And I, I, you know, like the whole thing about wanting to be paid to come to practice and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. And the, I think the um, sensibility or the, the ethic or whatever changed as well because there was so much money involved so i think it was a combination of both uh people now doing it for different reasons uh not doing it just because they had to and also having to take that punk thing and try to fit a, a square into like a circle basically and try to fit it into that commercial music mm-hmm. business and that's my opinion on sure. what i think led to the um I guess the, the the shrinking of, and also was right before the music business began to die as well. So, sure. but yeah. I think that those were the main things that contributed. Sure. No, I, I, and I agree. I also think one of the things, and, and this is, maybe this is just an aesthetics thing, but mm-hmm. I think just the success giving them bigger stages to play took oh, away yes. from the scene. I can remember Big seeing time. helmet, especially nice. helmet in a club. Yeah. It was a club with like a hundred people in it. And I mean, that yeah. was like intense. And yeah. then I remember seeing Helmet opening for, I forget who they were opening for, but it was somebody yeah. huge. And they're playing, a, you know, on a giant stage in front of 10,000 people. And they weren't built for that. They were, exactly. you know, it, exactly. it didn't, it didn't mesh well. And I think that hurt them because people that were seeing them for the first time were seeing them on 
in an environment that was not conducive to what they truly did. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Totally. I wish I'd said that actually. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> like um, when you are in that small club environment and you, you've got this tight woolly energy and everyone's in this close confined thing and you're watching something like, you know, um, Caius or, or, or whoever. Yeah. And then actually Caius is a bad example because they kick us no matter where they are. Sure. But um, I saw Caius lives playing in like a little tent and they were amazing. I saw them playing nice. on a massive stage. So they were amazing. Forget Caius. But like, if you take a thing <laughs> like Helmet or uh, something more obscure like Steel Pole Bathtub and you put them oh, into nice. an arena and people can like, what the fuck is this? Mm. Uh, you realize while Led Zeppelin played um, the same part three or four times over and over uh, because, yeah, it doesn't, it, it doesn't play well. It doesn't. Uh, right. That's why Nirvana was able to break through that because Nirvana were actually playing, you know, uh, rock songs. They were playing traditional, like, dan, mm -hmm. dan, da, da, dan, dan, more than a feeling. It's, yeah. you know, it was, uh, closer to traditional rock than a lot of these other bands were. So I think the bands that did break through like Smashing Pumpkins or Stone Temple Pilots, it was because they had that arena sensibility and how they wrote their songs to support that environment as well. Sure. Yeah. I just want to stop this right here and say this interview is already worthy to me just because you mentioned Steel Pole Bathtub, which is I thought I was the only person ever that had seen that band. So <laughs> that makes my day. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was well, actually, uh, so I was just going to say, um, I had some bizarre things happening to me um, uh, along the course of releasing this. And one of the strange things that was a bit surreal was that um, – I was interviewed on um, Sirius, uh, uh, the, the radio yeah, station. Yeah, I was, mm -hmm. yeah, I was interviewed on Sirius by Davey Havoc from AFI. He interviewed okay. me, which was a little bit wow. weird. And when I mentioned Steel Pole Bathtub in that interview, he got so freaking excited. It was really quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Well, yeah, I'm going to piggyback on what you guys are talking about. I, mean, I think one of the the things too, I mean, I think exactly, you know, what, what you guys both said are, are, are definitely on point. I also think though, too, unlike, unlike you know, previous decades, um, you know, where a band and artist they had they had time to sort of develop and prove themselves, right? Mm -hmm. You know, in the eighties and the seventies, you you got signed to a major, they gave you two or three records. Well, now the nineties brought the rise really of the independent labels. So the independent labels were really acting, you know, as as the minor leagues for the majors. I mean, they were doing. You know, they were taking all the chances on the bands, putting out a few records. That was great for the majors because they didn't have to sit there and say, all right, let's give this band three albums to prove themselves. They could say, all right, well, no, this, this band's on, on a, this independent. They put out one or two records. They're building up their, you know, their fan base steadily. Let's go ahead and we'll give them one shot. And that's what I think a lot of them did. And like, you know, and you're, you're right. Um, the, the manager who said in the movie about, taking a band out of its environment and then now putting it into the, the major label machine. I mean, it's not, everybody is going to be able to do that. I mean, even just having my own little label and having a, you know, having these bands try to go out outside of their hometowns and play shows was a major thing. A lot of them just couldn't do it. You know, even though they were, they did well in their local you know areas, they couldn't do it outside of that. So I think, you know, I think a lot of it was, you know, these guys got on one major, you know, one record to prove themselves 
And I mean, a lot of these guys got dropped like this. I mean, they did not have a chance to survive. It was almost impossible to su survive during the whole post Nirvana, you know, Cobain area. I mean, era, excuse me, you know, um, in the mid nineties there. And I think a lot of it, you know, once again, was because there was so much money being thrown and, and it was like, where, what did they do with the money? You know, once again, it was just, here's a band, here's hundreds of thousands of dollars. And this was, what's great. I know this was put in the film, you know, to be spent on these bands where, okay, they had their little scene or their little, you know, uh, you know, following in their ho hometown. It didn't necessarily mean it was going to, you know, other areas, other geographical regions, you know, the fans were going to be able to relate to them. And I think, you know, I think a lot had to do with the rise of independence that almost scared the majors where it was like, oh, what are we going to do? We can't, we're not grooming these bands anymore. We're just going to go ahead and, 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 you know, like I said, they were like the minor leagues. They would just kind of sign them off of, you know, whatever numbers they were doing, you know, whether they were on a, a family reptile or whatever record label, you know, they'd like a helmet, you know, bingo. That's a perfect example. I mean, helmet obviously meantime blew up and then, you know, they slowly started kind of going down after that as well. So anyway, that was just something I wanted to mention is really, and I think it was Derek Green that mentions it. He says, you know, you can't, you can't throw money and, and expect, you know, that's going to be able to resonate for, for decades with people. I mean, it's just, it's just money. So I think the art suffered because of the amount of money that was just thrown into it. And there was no real planning behind it because the major label guys don't know what they're doing in a lot of ways with these kind of bands. They didn't. Um, yeah, definitely. Like, um, as you said, the uh, majors were using the independent labels as a kind of feeder system. Uh, so they could, you know, um, go up in the ranks, supposedly. Uh, but another thing that happened as well was that at a certain point, majors just started signing um, uh, bands to majors without even having them put out indie, le in indie records at all mm -hmm. to begin mm -hmm. with so um uh so basically you had a band like um i don't know um what's a really obscure band for love not lisa okay. uh that mm -hmm. is a band that was signed to it was either electro or east west or one of the big ones that i think pantera was on or something sure. and they immediately they signed them no one that hadn't released anything they sent them out on tour to open for I don't know, um, whoever, um, mm. Bay City Rollers or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, um, and, and the bands did not, and that's what the majors didn't understand. A band like Faith No More or Soundgarden toured their asses off back and forth, mm -hmm. back and forth, constantly, nonstop. Yep. So by the time they actually went over to um, a major, they had that built in, um, uh, fan base, the same with like, I don't know, like a biohazard or white zombie. Um, mm -hmm. they really organically built that up. So they were a good, good fit, but they had that built in, um, audience that the majors wanted. And if you're going to sign a band right out the gate and just hope for gold that nine times out of 10, that isn't going to work, I think. Yeah, and, and I think another thing was, you know, uh, you know you're, you're right, and that's what it was. Like you said, these majors were just signing these bands really with not much experience. Like you said, I mean, some didn't even probably, even, like I said, have a record out. Um, they, they, the majors were just basically trying to look for the next Seattle, you know, the next, you know, big rock scene, physical rock scene. As we were saying, there's the 90s really were the last time we've seen a, a really physical rock scene. And because I remember there was like, for instance, I'll use uh, Arista. I mean, they they signed 
a couple of they they signed a few bands. Uh, uh, this band called Stick. Okay, uh, they were from here in, in Lawrence, Kansas. I remember the majors were trying to make Lawrence, Kansas, sort of the new Seattle. I mean, this this town in the middle. You had a band like like them, Stick. Like I said, signed. I mean, they, they were different because they had been in a previous band before and kind of you know had a, a following in the Midwest here in the United States, but. They all, then there was also a band out of there called Paw. I don't know if you guys remember the band Paw. I remember. Paw. I, um, yeah, they were the same thing. They were from Lawrence, Kansas. You know, they just they, they, there was about three bands or so from the, that you know that scene that they signed the labels that were just getting these bidding wars over just to try to think like maybe we could throw this on the wall and Lawrence, Kansas will be the new Seattle. You know, I mean, they tried. Obviously, they did that. You know, in in major cities with New York and L.A. Of course, like they always do, but. They, they really wanted to go to these different corners of the world to try to find a scene like a Seattle that wasn't really this maybe a, 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 more of a mid-major city than a major city. And, you know, and I think that was the thing, too. It was just let's – and a lot of the, the guys that were getting involved in signing these bands, like, for instance, Arista was L.A. Reed, and they were mostly in, into, like, you know, soul and, and, and hip-hop and so forth. They didn't really – they didn't really sign that many rock bands. I mean, you know, it just – it was it was very interesting how they really, I think – the downfall was in that period was every major label was just trying to find the next Seattle, trying to find the next Nirvana, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains. And, of course, that wasn't going to be. It's funny, actually, because, um, I mean, I know that we're all like, yeah, man, we're all punk or whatever. But right. the thing is, if you were successful, like, I mean, that's why I interviewed that um, guy from Filter, because that was an example of a band that hadn't done a thing right. and they were right. like right out the gate yeah. enormous like mm -hmm. selling out arenas before their album even came out mm -hmm. um so like that guy when i something that didn't make the cut of the film was him saying you know so we were very spoiled we didn't have to pay our dues so um the person in the band that makes it that can that does have the luck where whatever they're doing fits the mold of whatever's being marketed. Mm. Um, you know, if they can get their lottery ticket, then it works great for them. And I'm sure they don't have any complaints. So I thought I would mention that just to get a little bit of sure. perspective as well, that when it works in that system, it really works well. So yeah. I thought I would just mention that. Sure. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely. And then another thing that was great, I know that was mentioned in the film was, was, you know, they talked about one of the reasons too, uh, why so many of these bands we, we were getting dropped? I mean, they get signed and dropped like the next day. Uh, and, and I've heard this, you know, a lot of too, from a lot of you know people we've talked to in the industry was because of the high turnover rate with A and R uh, people at these labels. You know, if 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 like I said, if I signed uh, Better Than Ezra, well, if I got fired, you know, in a week, Better Than Ezra screwed. Bottom line, I mean, no one on that label is going to sit there and, and and you know work with them, and because it's not their band. You yeah. know, and I think that was another another major reason is because there was such a high turnover rate within the industry. Once again, whatever the labels were looking for, they did, weren't giving the A&R reps a lot of time to really, you know, prove themselves. So a lot of these bands just kind of kind of it, it was just bad luck, really. Yeah, um, I've got such a great example of what you're talking about. So um, the band Hanson, who I interviewed mm -hmm, yeah. a couple of, yes. they were the main feature, one of the main featured bands there yep. in the in Underground Inc. Um, Jeremy was saying how that's a singer, by the way. Um, mm -hmm. He was saying that um, a, like about a week or two before the album came out, Michael Goldstone announced that he had taken a 
Michael Goldstone was their A&R person and he mm. represented like Ozzy Osbourne and Pearl Jam and Rage Against the Machine. Like he was the golden boy at Sony. Mm -hmm. And a, a, just a week or two before the album came out, um, he announced that he had taken a job at DreamWorks and was leaving Sony. So uh, he left that band without any representation. And Jeremy said that he remembers being in Michael's office when he told him this. And he remembers, he said his heart sank because he thought, we're done. That's it. Mm. Who is going to be a champion at this giant behemoth that is Sony? You know, like, mm. so yeah, that, that was a really big one as well. Sure. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's interesting. We see it now in today's world. We're seeing all these old bands, the old heritage 70s bands and some of the 80s bands, but mostly the 70s at this point. They're all selling their catalogs for this huge amount of money. And I honestly think that that whole transition of only supporting those that have succeeded earlier started in the 90s in this exact era because this is when this is when all those all the people that used to be young and hip and were working at labels started becoming older. They started, you know, all these guys now that were 25 and were signing Guns N' Roses or Motley Crue or the Eagles or whoever, now they're 40, 50 years old and their wife, kids, homes, you know, they started seeing the finish line instead of still being aggressive toward the business. And I think that's why you had such a weird scene at this particular time. This was the first, this was like the first of the transition. And that's why everything was different. That's why the money was different. That's why the longevity of the bands and given the bands time to progress was eliminated because that all cost money. And it was taking money from these guys that were starting to look further down the line at their own careers. And I also think that's why you didn't have a true delineation of what alternative rock was. You know, I, I don't know about you, but you can't tell me that there's a similarity between 311 and White Zombie. There's just <laughs> not, but they're put into the same box for some reason. And, you, you know, I, and I think it's because those guys, as they were aging out that at the higher levels of the record industry, didn't care about this stuff anymore. They started thinking about their future, not the industry's future. Do you, do you see that? um yeah i do uh i think that another thing you could say about that is that um i think that some of the a and r people who got jobs at record companies were a part of um the scene who understood all these bands and, and got them and everything like that but i think a, a lot of the people who were trying to sign these bands were maybe people who had uh gotten business majors and mm -hmm. were just like the the music was sort of um like they you know how you'll meet someone who they'll hear like guns and roses and they'll hear Soundgarden, and they won't be able to kind of delineate a difference sure. it just it's just loud music to me right and you like it's all that sort of idiomatic music that all sounded the same so i think that there were a lot of people who worked at majors who maybe fell into that category um, more than 
the other version of an A and R guy. Sure. Okay. No, yeah. you're right, and and even more to the point, those that had success in the late '80s, mm-hmm. well the the label people that you know their higher ups were still trusting them into an environment that they didn't know mm-hmm. well you're the one that found guns and roses so whatever you bring me from the 90s must uh, be good too and uh, it's like wait a minute and, and that didn't work at all because they didn't have the same ear for it yeah but possibly possibly you know i, I mean there, yeah. I, I guess there's a million reasons why it didn't work <laughs> now when you were going through interviewing um the different band guys sean were were there any that were completely out of the industry or or was everybody that you talked to still active on some level within the industry a lot of them were out of it a lot of them that were out of it didn't sort of want to be interviewed i think um but like yeah there were people who had become like you know teachers or or whatever um but I think most of them were still in, involved because if you think about all the people that I had, you know, you got like Walter Schreifels, Jay Robbins, Pepper mm-hmm. Keenan, uh, Fishbone. These are all people that are still doing it. God bless them. So mm-hmm. most of them are still in it for life. But th- there were some, there were some people who kind of the, the music industry kind of fell out of them eventually. Yeah, makes sense. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to make a reach here based solely on your documentary, not on, not even on a thought that I truly probably believe, but it's just a thought. Do you think that today's stoner rock scene or desert rock scene or whatever we're calling it is the survivor, the surviving entity of the alternative scene? And, you know, cause obviously, like you said, COC still a band, still very active um monster magnet still a band still very active the guys yeah. from monster magnet have gone on to form atomic bitch wax and other bands caius or some version of caius whether some version of john garcia with any one of the 43 names that he does still very active it seems like that scene spawned what is today's desert rock scene i guess they're all just disciples of the melvins so uh yeah like i mean i i it's weird because all the even like there's like a band from like greece called um a thousand mods yeah like I, I mean you get all these bands and that stoner rock genre does feel like i mean you, you got the like the post hardcore stuff which is whole other thing entirely but mm-hmm. uh yeah that that stoner rock thing does feel like the last kind of bastion of you know true independence in yeah. in that in this kind of music um but um uh where i think i and no disrespect to the post-hardcore scene um uh because there's a lot of really really great post-hardcore bands now mm-hmm. more than ever but I, I feel like maybe there's a little bit more of a kind of a fashion uh thing like going on with the post-hardcore bands is like mm-hmm. a cool kind of factor where like those desert <laughs> those stoner rock guys are just like fuck you this is my <laughs> art and, you know so I, yeah. I i agree with that but i do think that they you know, they would have been doing their own thing one way or another anyway. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, I, I mean, I, I agree with Christian. I mean, you know, what we're seeing, 
you know, and, and of course now bands, they don't like to be called stoner rock or desert rock. It's heavy rock. That's what they always yeah. say. <laughs> heavy rock. But um, yeah, no, I mean, and, and what's good about that with the heavy rock, I mean, there's, that's what, you know, and, and I guess we'll talk about this for a little bit here is, you know, we're seeing now a resurgence in the nineties that not just even a lot of meaning like a lot of the bands are reforming, you know, you get a lot of bands that are getting back together, putting out records um, that sound, like I said, the, 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 that helmet sort of heavy, uh, alternative rock sound, uh, you know, is, is, it's really kind of back in, it's, it's, it's a new thing now. I mean, for a while it was the stone of rock and it was doom, but now it's whatever, but you know, we are starting to see that. I remember like I'm being Chris were talking about when I saw any, cause you had these guys in the, in the film too. When I saw about a week or so ago, I saw that downset got signed by nuclear blast. You know, that mm-hmm. to me told me all I needed to know that they're ready to push the nineties. Now, I mean, the eighties had its time, you know, they're renaissance. I mean, the, you know, the nostalgic sort of renaissance time the eighties had for a long time. Now we're seeing the nineties. I mean, obviously early nineties with grunge, you know, they've always still kind of, you know, most of those bands have kind of stayed together. A lot of them most, you know, they, obviously the big ones have, have been together for a long time and haven't really disbanded much or if they did it was for a short time or if someone, you know, was no longer around, but now, like I said, you're really seeing, like I said, downstate getting signed to the, uh, this major label. They haven't done, I mean, you know, like Nuclear Blast, they haven't done anything in years of being like downstate. You know, they haven't been relevant in years. Um, you're just, you're starting to see the, the 90s come back. A lot of the, you know, and obviously the new metal bands, you know, a lot of them are now packaging tours sort of like the way the hair metal bands do. You know, you have a head PE and flaw and so forth. These bands kind of uh, getting back together and, and doing these package tours. I mean, so I mean, what's what's great about your film coming out? I think is it really kind of came out too at a great time, where people are now like myself when I was watching this film, it was just like, wow, like you said, Course of Empire, Cop Shoot Cop, and these bands. I haven't heard of these bands. I haven't even thought about them really in quite some time. A lot of those bands were those records I'd see in the record store, you know, and I'd be like, I want to check this out, but you know, it's fifteen bucks, and I but I really want to get this over here, so I couldn't buy it, you know. So um, I think what's great about, you know, um, you know, Underground Inc. coming, you know, coming out within the last few years is great because it's really at a great time where people are starting to, you know, especially people who grew up with the, the music in that time that were really into it and going to shows like myself and like Chris and yourself, Sean, is people are starting to think about those bands again. And then now those bands are probably thinking, you know, maybe we can get back together and do a tour, do a record. And so I think it's it's great to see because you know I mean I, I was a fan of a lot of the bands it was we've kind of touched on it it was a definitely a, a very interesting time uh, confusing in a way because there were so many you know different sounding bands being lumped into one genre but it is good to see these bands coming back uh, and the labels now embracing sort of the nostalgic uh, period I think now which we're going to start seeing with the nineties I mean what are you seeing uh, yourself do you see that as well especially when you talk to those uh, you know, those those artists a few years back, I mean, were they, I, you said a lot of them aren't really in the business anymore, but is it something that sort of, you know, that you felt when you would, when they were talking about it, they sort of started to get excited to even, you know, bring, you know, talk about these, you know, uh, talk about their history with these bands that they were in the past. I mean, what's your, what do you see? Yeah, look, I mean, all of the people that I spoke to, as you can tell from watching them on camera, were really like, uh, genuine and, and forthcoming and they didn't have any pretenses. And I, I think that if, you know, uh, a band like Downset is signed to Nuclear Blast, I, I think that's awesome. And I think that they are, it, it's, it's, it's a great platform 
for them, obviously. And I think that I know that those guys were continuing to make music in their own time anyway. And uh, they are uh, lifers with the music they make. Um, but um, uh, to try to distill your, your question, to try to kind of boil it down, you were saying, um, uh, sorry, can, can you just sort of yeah, no, I'm just talking about uh, yeah, just kind of talking about the resurgence of the '90s uh, bands. Meaning, like you know, we're, we're starting to see a lot of them kind of you know get back together, um, put out some new music, go on tour. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, we, we Limp Biscuit, for instance, is you know, I mean, they're playing Madison Square Garden, and I remember maybe a handful a handful of years ago, it was like Limp Biscuit, no one would go see those guys. Now they're playing Madison Square Garden. You know, even just yeah, a few yeah. years ago, a few years ago, you had the Misfits and the Cro-Mags playing arenas. I mean that. As big as those bands were, I, I never thought of them as, as arena bands. So I'm, I'm just saying, like, what what, did, what are you sensing? Do you see the same thing? Um, do you see a lot of, you know, um, the, the, the okay. 90s, you know, kind of resurging, like we're kind of seeing over here? Look, I, I, I don't have um, a strong um, feeling on, on that because I don't, I don't really know. I mean, there's so many things that could have contributed towards that. But, like... I do know earlier on you were talking about the stoner rock bands and I do think that those newer generation of bands and the older bands go hand in hand because I, I feel like if, uh, let's say a band like, um, I, you know the band Wrong? Yeah, yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. they are definitely students of Helmet and mm -hmm. whores are definitely students of, let's say, Jesus is it. Uh, okay. So, mm -hmm. I think that if if a band like that is getting traction, then maybe it kind of um, this maybe there's some sort of snowball effect where mm -hmm. like um, there's like that mo I don't know I don't know but <laughs> I I have a feeling that maybe there is some sort of connection where you know uh, if younger bands are doing it then it's sort of it's it somehow connects to maybe older bands getting a platform. I, I, I really couldn't say. Sure. Mm. Uh, Sean, I, I, I'm curious. Did, during this time period, during the 90s, did you live in Australia? Um, no, I was born in South Africa. Okay, so you weren't here in the States, though, is what I'm kind of getting to. No, I am I am a stranger from another town. <laughs> I, to quote Jeffrey Lee Pierce, um, right. I, I, I am, uh, yeah, I'm just a wayfaring stranger. Uh, <laughs> I was born in South Africa, moved to Australia in my teens. I okay. had been to America a number of times, but uh, I, I would say that my interest in wanting to make this, uh, I didn't grow up in a scene or anything like that. Sure. I just... Mm -hmm heard the recordings and they just spoke okay. to me in that kind of a way where I just, I wanted to make um, something that celebrated these bands and I wanted to make something where by the end of it, by the time they were finished watching Underground Inc, they wanted mm -hmm. to go and hunt out like sure. if someone had never heard of Clutch or if someone had never mm -hmm. heard of Sugar Tooth, they would go out and want to look for these mm -hmm. bands. So that's what right. I set sure. in mind to do. It's just knowing that, though, it's fascinating to me that the bands that you're most drawn to are bands that you probably didn't see because mm -hmm. those bands weren't big enough to travel to South Africa or to, 
to certainly to Australia. I mean, I, I work with a lot of bands and believe me that that trip to Australia is reserved for only the guys that are making big money. You know, it's just fascinating that you chose a style that was so built on the live setting and yet you probably didn't experience it to get that magnetism to draw you to it. Yeah. And, um, and, and ironically it was, it's all because of the fact that these bands got on major labels that I ended up discovering them. So, Mm -hmm. uh, that was probably one of the other, uh, upsides to all of this is that a lot of bands that maybe wouldn't have been able to make those big sounding albums, or maybe bands that were a little bit too commercial for an indie, uh, mm-hmm. in that sort of in between space, uh, got to make really great albums. So yeah, it's, uh, uh, I, I do, I do think about what you were just saying there, sure. Chris, it's definitely not lost on me. It's definitely, it, it, it's, it's a cool factor about a cool movie and, I'll tell you straight up, Sean, I don't love all those bands. And mm-hmm. I went back, I watched the the movie and I went back and I still don't love all those bands. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, I, I did try to like, like clutch is one. I just don't get, oh, I, man, I, I, I know I'm the, I'm the one That's guy great. that just doesn't get clutch, but I, I can't deal with Neil's voice. I'm sorry. I can't, but you know, <laughs> you, that, you can't love everything. Well, that's it. <laughs> And, and I mean, but there are bands, I will say though, I went back and listened to the handsome record and was mm-hmm. like, wow, this really was pretty fucking good. It's, like, you know, it's, like, I mean, so there are, and I think that's what's best about your movie is you really didn't quantify any of it and just say, well, these are the great bands. You just were like, well, these are the bands that I talked to and you left it open. Like you said, go find out for yourself. If you like sugar tooth, go find out for yourself. If you like helmet or clutch or who whatever yeah. and i think that's probably the best draw to your movie is it reminds people of a time that they maybe maybe didn't investigate fully and it brings mm-hmm. them yeah. brings them to do that no yeah so i'm just um uh turning away a call oh. um yeah um yeah man i mean look yeah shit like you're not gonna like everything and i get that maybe uh, someone might see the band and go, oh, they, they suck. This film sucks because that <laughs> band is in it or whatever. But it's just, it's just what I like. And I, it's, I, I'm, I'm happy with, uh, with, with what I made. And sure. I think that if you land up leaving, being interested in just a couple of these bands, that's the goal that I set out to do. So, yeah, it's, uh, it, 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 it it leaves me with a great sense of satisfaction to know that I, I made something that obviously had a compelling story with obviously the, the business side and the sure. betrayal and everything. Mm-hmm. And also leaves you maybe wanting to have an interest in a side of music that maybe you didn't quite know as much about before or are willing to maybe reassess some of the bands and mm-hmm. maybe you like yeah. some, maybe you don't. Yeah. Very good. Well, the movie is called Underground Inc., The Rise and Fall of Alternative Rock. And uh, Sean, where should we tell people to go to? Obviously, here in the States, they can go to Tubi and watch it. But where Mm -hmm. where else should we tell people to be looking for the movie to check it out and maybe even, you know, do the thing that people don't do anymore and actually buy it? Uh, Well, uh, actually, if you go to, uh, I keep forgetting my own URL, go figure. Okay, if you go to undergroundinkfilm.com, 
Sorry. Okay. Okay. If you go to undergroundinkfilm.com, you'll be able to find a page on there that has a listing for all the places you can find it. If you want to get it on DVD, there are some listings for some stores that are selling it. If you want to uh, get it on iTunes or Google Play or or Vudu or any of those ones, uh, there's a comprehensive listing on the, uh, I think it's called like, there's a link on the top of the screen that says, you know, get this film and then you can find out where it is. If you just want to watch it for free, uh, just as a curiosity, you can see it on Tubi. Uh, so there's lots of options out there. So that URL to check it out again is Underground Inc. Film. All one word, undergroundinkfilm.com. Very now, good. Now, sure. Are you, are you um, just quickly, I mean, because uh, I really enjoyed the, the film and I thought you did a great job. Are, are you thinking of doing any any other kind of music, music business films in the future? Um, there is one thing that has been percolating in my brain. I've been like (laughs) getting all jazzed up about thinking of, uh, it's not so much about the business side. It's more on the creative side of things. Uh, I, I swore that I would never want to do a documentary again after making this. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I did want to make a horror film as well. But mm. uh, there's one documentary and one horror film that I've got like in the creative tank, and it's just sort of swirling around, waiting it. for it all to come together. So that's currently what I'm, I'm where my head is at at the moment. So, so was the experience of doing this was it that was it that grueling? I mean, we hear a lot about you know we we know people we're good friends with people who have done documentaries, and you know, it's obviously people just think oh you you, you turn on a camera you interview them. You do some editing and you got a documentary, but no, if you're going to do it the right way, like you did, it's it's kind of a grueling process, is it not? Uh, look, it it is. Um, I, I think the reason why I say that is because uh, I didn't have an editor helping me until years into me trying to go through. Let's say I filmed about ninety to a hundred hours of footage. Yeah. Um, it took me several years to get little scenes down. And then by the time JB came on board, who was just uh, a lifeline when he came on and helped with the animation and everything like that, and the, and the editing and, and making a concise story and the structure. Um, when he was helping with that, it was already several years in. And then the whole distribution thing is another several years. And um, uh, there's a lot of things that can kind of dampen your spirit and you have to keep kind of reminding yourself what it was that made you fall in love with wanting to do it in the first place a lot of the time. So that's probably why you hear that kind of thing because it's it's a lot of very introspective time where you're kind of banging your head against the wall for years wondering, is this going to come together or not? So that's mm. a, a little bit of the process. Got it. Okay. Well, great. Well, we're very grateful you've done it once again. Underground Inc., the rise and fall of alternative rock. And Sean, thanks so much for coming on. And, uh, you know, just tell our listeners out there go check this movie out. Uh, it's you won't be disappointed, even if you like you don't necessarily have to like the music. You know, bottom line, it's just a great film to explain a, a, a time of music where I think, like you said, he's, he's either forgotten or people just don't know much about because it was sandwiched between, you know, uh, between, like I always said, you know, the grunge and the new metal, so it's it's sort of a lost time period. So it's uh, it's good to see someone put together a film like this. So thanks again, Sean. We appreciate it. 
Thank you so much. And um, I don't want to end on a negative note because I've got pretty <laughs> like a downer there. Uh, oh. Can I just say one quick thing? Sure. I know you've got to wrap up. I just wanted to say that the bands that are featured in the film have got so much heart. Uh, even if you are maybe more into bands that are more popular or something, watch the film and give these bands a try because um, – you will get so much out of these bands and their music and the places that it will take you to and the discoveries that you'll make just by listening to them uh, will be worth it alone uh, because they changed my life and uh, they're going to be some people out there who they have the same effect on. So that's all I'll say. Absolutely. Great. Awesome. All right. When it's time to rock, it's time to tune in to Crash Course Radio. Featuring the very best of the heavier music, from Slayer to Clutch to Fear Factory, it's all in one place, Crash Course Radio. To tune in to Crash Course Radio, simply visit www.cmsradio.net. You can also tune in on the CMS Network app by opening the app clicking the musical notes at the top right corner and selecting Crash Course Radio from our stations. All the best heavy music is there, so you should be too. Ditch the commercial radio and make Crash Course Radio your everyday station.